The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw a sign there on the sign it said no trespassing but on the other side it didn't say nothing well that sign was made for you and me Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Hope everybody is doing well. Welcome to another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Today I have a super cool guest. We've been working on trying to connect and do a podcast for about three months now. Uh, Heather Duville uh, owns a platform called AK for Alaska, AK Moosey. Uh, She is an amazing person who is telling the story of food and hunting and fishing and the cultural tradition of her people. Uh, she lives in Southeast Alaska, uh, home of the Thlinkit tribes. Uh, and this Instagram page she has, as much as I'm not a social media nut, right? You all know that I hardly know how to do it. Uh, the style, the tone, the messaging, the way she uses it to tell stories about how food and traditions and the culture of their people are so tied to the lands and the landscape. I watch every bit of it. (laughs) I'm not a big fan of watching things on social media, but in this case, I make an exception. Uh, Heather's trying to make sure that the story of, of... the food aspects, the landscape aspects, the cultural aspects of her people gets gets a voice and she's doing a great job of it. Um, She has her dad on there who he's a a very compelling character. I don't know if that's the right term to put to it. I don't know if he realizes how intriguing he is. but through the process of seeing how they use, I don't care if it's fish, if it's sea mammals, if it's fur, deer, berries, uh, uh, fish eggs, you name it, there's something there that gets converted to food and it all comes off the landscape. And I can't say that I live a life like that, but it causes me to think about my food and my acquisition through hunting and fishing and how what what's my relationship with my landscapes and and the animals and and plants that I, I benefit from uh but I don't have any talent in telling stories through social media that's why I have a staff that does it but I I think you'll get 
a huge benefit in hearing Heather's story, uh, both for a couple hours on this podcast, uh, and hopefully it'll compel you to go and check out her uh, Instagram page and also check out her business. I know she does a little bit of stuff uh, making fur garments uh, based on uh, the furs that come from the animals they harvest. So anyhow, appreciate y'all being here. Uh, I really appreciate heather taking the time super busy person uh uh, she told me this is her first podcast but i doubt that anyone is uh with such a compelling story this can't be her first podcast but she says it is so uh i'm sure she'll do great and uh really looking forward to this conversation her and i have swapped lots of emails had a few hours of phone call uh before all this uh I I could ma- I think I could have made this podcast probably six hours long. I'll try to keep it to two for all of you. So thanks for being here. Really appreciate you. Well, folks, in the introduction of this podcast, I told you that our guest today is one of the most interesting. If There used to be a commercial called The Most Interesting Man in America. Today, we are talking to the most interesting woman in America. Heather, thanks for being here. Did I, did I put you on the spot there? A little bit. Thank you for having me. Wow, that's a very powerful introduction (laughs) well if if you used my again i'm not much of an instagrammer but those little round circles up on the top if i I asked my crew i'm like why does this one always show up called ak moosey they're like because that's the one you spend the most time scrolling through so uh (laughs) at least in my vote heather you're, you're the most you and your instagram page and your story are the most interesting person story and page in america at least wow. based on based on my consumption habits i guess thank so. you wow that's so much but. it's so i feel very humbled um, <laughs> yeah it just it started out by you know these are all things that are featured on my page that we would be doing anyway so all of the harvesting and the different foods and plants that are in season throughout the year we spend um, putting up for our winter supply. And this is things that I grew up doing since I was um, a little kid and that my dad grew up doing. And these are these are our cultural ways that have been passed down from generation to generation. So I just one day decided to create a page and start sharing it mainly for for me, kind of put yeah. this timestamp on things and I'm able to look back and find out, you know, when the herring spawned that year or when the beach greens were ready to harvest. And it just sort of took off. And I'm really grateful mm-hmm. to have met you and all of the people who who follow the page. And I'm able to share these things that are really important to me and my family and, and our culture with yeah. everybody. It's fascinating. You, you, you know, here you are like, well, this is just what we've done forever. For me, I'm like, look at this. They make their own halibut jigs and lures and hooks and they go and catch halibut. And then look how they catch all these salmon. Look at all these berries. There are, it's all seal, herring spawn. It's like this, 
I don't know if this will happen and you probably don't want it to happen, but reality TV missed out when they flew to the interior of Alaska and they overpassed Craig, Alaska. They should have grabbed your dad and you and said, now this is real reality TV, but, <laughs> cool. but, it, but it would be real, right? Because it's what you guys have done going back as far as anyone really can remember. I have it's, to, it, I have to admit they've, They've reached out, but you know, my dad, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't, honestly, the things that people are doing throughout the state and, and, you know, indigenous people up North, I, I credit them too, because we all have a different way of harvesting and a different way that we've learned that I really respect and appreciate. And, Mm -hmm. you know, shows have reached out, but my, my dad is just like a hard no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he he's never actually seen the AK Moosey page. He okay. said if he'd seen it, he probably wouldn't let me record him. <laughs> but he's it's to the point where people think he's the dad of the world. They stop mm-hmm. him in the grocery store and Yeah. You know, I, I really do think he he likes knowing that people are learning from him and they are learning mm-hmm about our culture. And he's also teaching, you know, we are also teaching other indigenous people who may not have had the chance to learn some of these things from their parents or grandparents. And a lot of those things were lost through, you know, various ways, you know, colonization and, and, Mm -hmm. and separation from our culture. So he, it is really rewarding to be able to teach people in our own community, new things, yeah. Well, and, he, uh, yeah, reality TV is not on his <laughs> list of goals, but oh. I, in some ways, I'm like, I can't believe they would want to even do a show about us because this is just our normal life, like you said. Right. And wow. thank you for um, mentioning the the halibut hooks. It the clinket word for them is actually it's nach. How do you say that? It's nach. So the English spelling would be N-A-X-W, Nah. N-A-X-W. Yeah, and when we, I've actually not caught a halibut on a regular pole. Um, We've fished for halibut using Nah my entire life. And they're, you know, they're these wooden hooks as you've seen on my page. And Mm -hmm. my dad has carved them and he learned to make them from an elder. His name was Ralph James, but we called him Grandpa Ralph. And Uh (laughs) they're made from yew wood and yellow cedar. And so the design portion that you see is the yew wood. And then the yellow cedar is the portion that has the barb. And the different densities of wood allows them to float properly as they sink to the bottom and as they float off the bottom. So they float at an angle, you know, and then they're baited with octopus and each one has a design on it and they're set in pairs. Okay. So they're, they compete against each other underwater. No way. So we give... (laughs) I didn't know that part of it. Yeah. So each one (laughs) is given eyes and you can see they're they have inlaid eyes with abalone shell Mm -hmm. and as we set them 
you know, we want, we actually set our intention. And when we set the hooks, we make sure we give them encouraging words and clink it. So uh-huh. that's my traditional language. So we tell them, and that means like, you know, have strength or have courage or do the best you can. Uh-huh. Your friend is coming to fight you. <laughs> and then you, you lower them and you give that intention, you know, and then they compete. They float and they compete against each other underwater. And mm-hmm. and then sometimes both catch, sometimes none. But that sea monster hook really does well. The, uh, when I look at that, the first time I saw it, I thought, this can't work. This, this, it, it just, and okay, I'll give my bias. I spent a summer working on my grandfather's halibut longliner boat, right? We just took a herring, every hook that went out the back, we snapped the, the leader on the ganyan and out went the herring. And it, you know, you set hundreds of hooks on each set and it worked. And so I saw these, I'm like, come on, can that really work? Does that work? And then I start seeing your all the pictures and how they get hooked and how you're talking about, well, the way they're built, they're to catch a fish of a certain size. Uh, we we know when the fish are going to be in this depth or that depth. I'm like, this yeah, is so- the kind of knowledge that could never be taught in a class, in a book. This is this has got to be cultural, oral, like the traditions that you've told me that you're, you and your family and, and those, you know, going however far back, it's, you get taught how to do this by showing you how to do it. Yeah. And so a lot of our cultural traditions and our history is not documented or the things that are documented, they're documented from a Western's perspective. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of our teachings is done through storytelling and showing like and I actually didn't even introduce myself. So my traditional name is Kutink. And my grandma gave me that name after her best friend. Her best friend's traditional name was Kutink, but her English name was Irene Pradovich. And she asked Irene if she could name me after her. And then when I was given that name, I was told that story. And so that stays with me. And when I introduce myself, I tell that story so it stays alive and that's how we keep our culture alive and my clan is a shankwiti it's a wolf clan and in our culture you follow your mother's lineage so i'm eagle killer whale and my dad is a raven beaver his clan is deshitan so i am the opposite clan than my father so we've we take our mother's lineage and Uh. (laughs) you're either an eagle or a raven. And then um, that's how you follow different families in this region. You ask, or like when you introduce yourself, you, you could say your traditional name and your clan, and then you say your father's clan. And because they already know your mother's because you're following your mother's lineage Mm -hmm. and um, language, Language is something I'm learning, something that it has a threat of being lost. So I'm huh. learning my traditional language. And back to what you had said about our culture being passed down through storytelling or teaching, like with the hooks, 
um, you know, when my dad was showing me the hooks as a kid, he told me who taught him to mm-hmm. carve and, and he tells me the story that went with it. And, and he always said that grandpa Ralph told him never insult his hooks by hanging them on the wall for decoration. So my dad <laughs> doesn't sell them. A lot of people want to buy them, but they're made to be used. used. Uh-huh. So yep, we fish uh-huh. halibut with those. And, you know, you had talked about the the areas where halibut can be found. So we, we typically fish for halibut in the warmer months because they come into the shallow waters and they feed in all the kelp beds. Okay. So they come in, you know, as shallow as, you know, like six fathoms, just Mm -hmm. 36 feet deep. And we've caught really big halibut in really shallow waters because they kind of poke around in the kelp and eat kelp crabs and little rockfish and things like that. But Mm -hmm. they're actually not made to catch a certain size of halibut. We've caught a 275 pound halibut oh, wow. on one and then oh, you can okay. catch a 40 pounder because if you look at a halibut's cheek it's only you know this thick, depend- thick. and it doesn't yeah. matter how big that halibut is it's little that jaw thick, is, no matter what yeah okay but okay. once they the hunt talk radio podcast is brought to you by go hunt it's application season And if you're like me and you want to have the best hunting season of your life, well, that all starts with getting tags during application season. So if you want to have all that information we use right at your fingertips, go out to GoHunt.com and sign up. Promo code Randy is going to get you $50 of store credit. Put in your account when you sign up using promo code Randy. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler, and over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium-grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt gear shop, gohunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mystery Ranch backpacks, can't beat them. Go check them out. They go up to their food and, you know, they have eyes on the top of their head and they yeah. they can't see real well. So they go up and they open their mouth and it creates a vacuum. And yeah. so they suck that, it in. that octopus in and then they don't like it and then they spit it out. And it, that's when it ejects that barb like right into their cheek and then they can't, they can't be released. <laughs> so once you catch a halibut on there, it actually can't be released. So like a really huge oh, wow. halibut, we probably wouldn't keep, but yeah. on those, you would have to keep it. 
Yeah. So they go up to a buoy. So the, the hook weighs enough with the octopus wrapped around it. And you say, okay, it's X feet deep. Yeah. Or so we, fathoms deep and it goes to a buoy or something? Yeah, that's actually a good question. So traditionally, and we and today we use a, a round, two round rocks. So they're about this big and they have a groove carved in them. Okay. And that's your sinker. So you drop okay. the sinker down <laughs> and then the hook is a few feet away from that. And then you have your next hook. So it sits on the bottom like a long line, like you okay. had referenced. And then your other sinker. And then the line goes up to a buoy, which uh, traditionally the line was made from cedar bark cordage. Whoa. And the hooks were tied together with spruce root. And then the barb would be from like um, a bare bone a leg bone from a bear. Yeah. And so today we do use um, modern materials mm-hmm. and we have rope, but we still use a tattletale buoy. So it's in the shape of a cormorant. Okay. The bird, and it has a long neck. So when you get a fish, it tips up. Yep. So that's the tattletale buoy. And then we have like a regular, you know, buoy tied on there. But traditionally, our people would use an inflated dried seal stomach. Really? With a tattletale buoy. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's hard to explain because like you really need a visual, you know, I wish that everybody could see. Well, they can. Yeah, you can go. At least to some degree, they can go out to your page and watch this. Yeah. And it's... It's so fascinating because you do a great job of every little bit of what you're showing on your page. You connect what's the historical or cultural story to this. Like you're talking about, well, traditionally, here's what we use. You know, we use a bare bone. It's like, whoa, who would have ever thought that you could manufacture a fish hook out of a bare bone? Would have never entered my mind. But Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of hooks that were carve to catch rockfish the different shapes if you you know i look at old books and i can see hooks that you know sometimes it was just a bone mm-hmm. as the hook and then it would get you know lodged in their throat or whatever so it, it's really interesting to see how fishing was done you know for the last ten thousand years and traditional <laughs> ways of catching fish our people are very innovative and <laughs> yeah so the the cedar bark was how the the rope or or twine or string was made of cedar rope. Yeah, it's the inner bark of cedar. So we harvest cedar in it's usually in May, May or June, and you pull the cedar bark off old growth trees, and you make sure that you you don't over harvest, so the tree will stay alive. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure you focus on like a quarter of the tree and leave the rest alone. And you don't harvest the same trees from the same trees every year. So you pick different trees so they can recover. And you pull the bark from the trees and then you peel off that outer bark and then you let that inner bark dry. And then you can soak it in water and 
process it so thin it down and make you know wefts if you're going to weave a basket or you can start to roll it and make that cedar bark cordage which you need like three or four hands to do and it's really really strong that's fascinating because you you know haven't spent a lot of time up in southeast alaska you, you you look at how much grows there these amazing cedars sitka spruce all kinds of stuff and I would have never in my wildest dream thought, well, that's what you could use that for or or where you would get that. Yeah, it's uh, amazing when, you know, and then some baskets are woven real tightly so they can hold water, not leak. mm -hmm. And and the different types of baskets are for different harvests. So, you know, a berry basket would have like maybe larger plating because you wouldn't need, you know, it to be waterproof um but it's really i love hunting and hiking here and you can if you really look around you can see you know the old growths that that were harvested you know hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago Mm -hmm. they're still there or sometimes you can see like an old ads mark in a cedar where our people were checking it for to see if it was a good canoe tree Oh, and so wow. you check it before you cut it down. You know, now you cut it down and you see if it's right. You know, quality Different. wood, but yeah, you want to make sure we leave uh, no trace. Yeah. So all of these things, every every story we discussed, and in full disclosure, folks, prior to this podcast, Heather and I spent a lot of time talking about things, and she told me so many fascinating stories and tidbits that we're not going to get them all covered on one podcast, but it's, it all started listening to me for that long. Oh no, not at all. (laughs) Because, and this is what I think is so fascinating about what you're doing, Heather. And in your modesty, you're going to say, oh, well, it's not about me. And I know it's not about you, but you have become this storyteller to the rest of the world who doesn't live in Craig, Alaska. And you said that this started because your dad was sick. You were wanting to record a bunch of things, make sure you captured some stuff that was important to you. Uh, He's now, from what I understand, doing better. But it grew into now it's a voice for this history and this connection that your people have had to this land in a sustainable manner for however many thousands of years. And you can tell your dad that he may not want to be the star of things, but when I watch your dad process a fish, and this this is just somebody who really takes a lot of pride in his fish processing. Like, I want to make sure I save the collars, I save the wings, I save the cheeks. I, I, when I'm done with a walleye down here, the buzzards are not happy. The seagulls are not happy because there's nothing left. So watching how your dad processes a salmon or a halibut to me is like fascinating. I'm like, oh, I, I got to watch this. this. And so now you got me hooked. Or every time your dad's on there doing fish, I'm like, I'm watching this. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, I've, the, I've actually learned myself from recording him and rewatching. So I finally have graduated to the level where he doesn't have to leave <laughs> when I fillet fish. <laughs> So up until this year, he would have to like 
find a reason to go in the house or not watch me because <laughs> he's so good. And he's like, he's like a surgeon, you know, and I've, every, every year we take on a little more responsibility. I call myself a student and, you know, my niece and nephew are students. We're in training and um, it's really fun to look back and, and see how I've grown, how they've grown. And, you know, that's how it works. You know, we work alongside of our elders and they teach us. And in the first few years, it's just watching. And then you start participating. Maybe you hang the fish on the sticks in this and get them ready to go in the smokehouse. And then each year you do a little more and you look back and, and you realize how much you've grown without really feeling the pressure or or you know it just kind of happens naturally and and that's the beauty of it and then you know one day I'll be in that role making sure I I you know I have a responsibility to carry on my culture from it I have a responsibility that stems from it's like rooted in uh, let's see, I don't know how to explain it. I have a responsibility to carry out my culture and the people that came before me really didn't have the opportunities that I have now mm-hmm. to share. And and I want to make sure that I do my part and I carry them with me in everything that I do. and they are the reason why I know the things that I know Mm -hmm. and the fact that those things have survived so many years of, um, you know, colonization, displacement, loss of land, cultural disruption. I really want to make sure that I do my part. So, yeah, you, 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 in our prior conversations, you've talked about that, how the elders are the most valued people in your culture. And you guys don't have this, well, grandma got old, let's roll her down to the <laughs> old folks' home. Yeah, kind of thing. our elders are our most prized assets. They are mm-hmm. our most important assets. They're our knowledge keepers, and we really cherish them. So... Whenever we hunt or fish, you know, one of our cultural values is generosity. So we always make sure we take care of not only people in the community, but elders first. And Mm -hmm. that community gatherings or, you know, group gatherings, elders get their food first. And the younger people serve the elders. And... Yeah, that's something we learned from a very young age. So, you know, we talk about retirement now and like, oh, you get to a certain age and then you retire and you go like whatever. Uh But in our culture, that's when you really have a lot of responsibilities because you're passing down that knowledge to the next generation so it can continue to live on through them. Mm-hmm. That's when your real work begins is, you know, my dad's got his work cut out for him teaching all of us. <laughs> uh, well, he appears to be doing an excellent job, Heather. I I, I watch it. Like, you guys have been on your, your platform. You've shown all these traditional methods for 
curing and, and uh, taking care of salmon, of halibut, of so many different foods. And our, uh, when you're learning this stuff, it's got to be fascinating. And, and maybe it's just, maybe I'm putting my lens of the world on this, but like, I look at how different you guys prepare your salmon compared to every other way I've seen salmon prepared. And they, when you, when you're done with the fish, it looks like little Christmas tinsel hanging there. Here's all this beautiful silver flesh and then the, the bright red meat. And you guys go through it. Dried fish. Dried fish. Yeah. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Mountain Tough. The Mountain Tough Bodyweight On-Ramp Program is the perfect program for someone who's busy like I am. If you travel a lot, if you got that busy daily life, this works. I know because I've been in it. And I also know that I have to make fitness a priority at this point in my life. The Mountain Tough Fitness app makes that incredibly easy. I get to follow a program from start to finish, and I know when I'm done, I will have achieved my goal and my goal for hunting and my health. I'm going to hunt until I'm 80. Well, I hope I am if I live that long. Anyhow, if you want to invest in your health and your hunting, go to mountaintough.com, sign up for the free trial. You'll get 14 days free. But if you use promo code RANDY when you sign up, they'll add another 30 days onto that free trial. Go there, mountaintough.com. Yeah, so these are just the the traditions and cultures of how your people have done it forever. Yeah, so a lot of the food that we eat, it's, yeah, it's a a tradition that has been passed down. But a lot of it was dried because the preservation methods are different now than they were, you know, historically where, you know, now we have a refrigerator, a freezer, you know, my dad grew up without a refrigerator. So a lot of their food was salted and then dried. And then historically our people 
moved from camp to camp depending on what food was in season. So, you know, similar to what we talked about mm-hmm. in our previous conversation about our year and, and the different harvest seasons, we still practice that. We just put up the foods a little bit differently, but some of them are very similar. Some of the methods are very similar where we still dry fish. It's so good. Everybody loves it. It's like a delicacy here and everyone has their own little different way of drying fish and Uh everyone thinks it's the best way. And I don't disagree. I think, you know, whatever way works for them and connects them to their food and that's the way their family has passed that down. It's really important to celebrate that. So you're right. We we really don't season our food a lot. We like to taste what we're eating. Yeah. So maybe a little salt. We we do a quick brine, like a 30 second wet brine and salt and brown sugar and then hang it in the smokehouse and we do a cold smoke method tell tell me a cold smoke method i've watched it and i think i know but yeah tell me the secret behind that well our so our harvest season starts in march with a seal and we make seal oil and you know we process the whole seal and, and even the hide we use to to make moccasins and things in the winter time so we make seal oil and that's used as a condiment for many other foods that we harvest throughout the rest of the year. So we have that seal oil in the fridge and then, you know, we harvest herring roe and then black seaweed and then beach asparagus and the list goes on. And then about midway through there, um, we start to put up our salmon. So king salmon are the first salmon to come in and we typically don't dry them because they're larger. Okay. Um, yeah, they're larger in size, so they take longer to dry. We we usually dry a lot of sockeye and cohos and even pink salmon. Mm-hmm. We call them humpies. They make good dried fish too. So the smaller fish is usually what we focus on drying, and we fillet them and then cut the ribs out, and then we they're cut into quarter inch thick strips. Mm-hmm. And we make sure we save the collars and the bellies. And then we just do like a quick brine, a 30-second brine. There's no secret recipe. Everyone has their own <laughs> recipe. And the the whole, the the part you don't want to do is over brine. So you don't want it to be too salty. You know, I it's cold. Getting back to your question, the cold smoke. A cold mm-hmm. smoke method is different than a hot smoke. So I've seen people brine their fish in like a dry brine and then soak the fish mm-hmm. out. For the cold smoke, we just a quick blanch and we hang the little strips over spruce sticks. Yep. Spruce is really strong, can hold a lot of weight because sometimes we'll process, you know, 50 to 100 fish. Yeah. And then, you know, versus a cedar stick or or a different kind of wood, it won't add flavor to the fish. And then we hang it in the smokehouse, which is a six foot by six foot smokehouse with a hole in the ground. And I use a truck rim in the ground. A truck rim. Oh, like a tire rim? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. My cousin, 
my cousin gave me one for my new smokehouse. I don't know where he got it, but I probably shouldn't say this, but he said, the fish will taste better if the truck rim is stolen. (laughs) (laughs) And he dropped it off at my house. I'm like, I don't even want to know where you got this thing or found it. (laughs) Probably found it out in the woods somewhere. (laughs) Probably. And um, so I have a big truck rim in the ground and that's where you build your fire. And then we actually, we light the fire. We use alder for our smoke. Okay. And then we put a tin sheet over the fire to keep it from turning into like a rolling fire. Yep. So it just smolders. And then we have a fan in the smokehouse that, you know, oscillates and it, circulates the smoke and we this is a tricky part because a lot of people want to know like what temperature or what time and Mm -hmm. the smoking time depends on the weather so if it's it's real damp and humid out we might smoke it a little longer Mm -hmm. and if it's real dry you might you might smoke it you know six hours less so it's really weather dependent and then we time it by the number of fires. So for dried fish, oh, wow. it's usually one fire. Okay. And in the wetter months, maybe one and a half fires. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And um, it makes like this really nice like glaze on the fish and the fan will help dry it out a little bit. And then we transfer the strips into a drying shed so we don't use a dehydrator. Okay. Because you can over dry the fish and then it gets crumbly like chips. Yep. And then we check it every day in the drying shed. It has fans and And then when it's it's done, it's done. We cut it up and the best way to store it is by freezing it. Okay. And just take out a bag and keep it in the fridge and just snack on it. (laughs) <laughs> so good <laughs> something tells me a bag wouldn't last me very long if yeah, i pulled it uh, pulled it out it's not going in the fridge it's getting eaten <laughs> it's usually one fish equals a quart size it yields a quart size bag of strips okay okay huh so when Sorry, we that talk, was a really long explanation no, for- it, it's exactly what i was looking for because it touches on so many little aspects of how you you and your dad and whoever taught your dad and you know Just, going back yeah. as far as time goes back how Let me know you've if you done want this. me to be more concise i will no <laughs> okay no this is these are the examples <laughs> we're trying to get into because it should leave people with the flavor of how different food every aspect of food how you how you acquire it how you process it how you store it what it means to you culturally compared to what I grew up with, right? Okay, we, we caught some trout. Here's what we're going to do with them. We're going to go brine them real quick and we're going to throw them in the smoker, get it up to 125 degrees. And it's based on the time. It's yeah. not based on... Like, I, I can't like... One people, fire. Yeah, people yeah. are like, what's the recipe? I'm like, well, it depends if you have 50 fish or if you have 10 fish, it's like a handful of this, two handfuls of that. And then... <laughs> You know, you fill up the bucket to a certain, it just depends. And so I really wish that, honestly, I really wish I could have everyone as a guest and we could all put up fish mm-hmm. together. But I, I, 
I do my best in making like the videos and, and explaining on my page, but I'm also working with my dad. I'm working with my niece and nephew and, and being present in that moment with them. Cause you know, those are moments I can't ever get back. So I do what I can and I video and then I put the phone down, I put my gloves on and I work on fish. But like you said, with, with any of the things that we put up, we want to make sure we use as much of that as we can. So we really minimize waste. And, you know, as you saw my dad fillet fish, he fillets the fish very close to the backbone and, and we smoke the backbones and you can make a stew. We actually eat the heads and you, you know, split them right down the nose and you can smoke the heads and and bake them after. So it's a cold smoke. So the fish has to be either cooked or dried after. Yeah. And then, um, we make fish head soup and we, we never discard the bellies or the collars. I see a lot of, yeah, a lot of people doing that. And we, that's like our favorite part is the collar and the belly. Um, and, and we really make sure we honor that whatever we've harvested, you know, it gave its life for us to be able to eat and put up our winter supply of food. So we make sure we respect that. And we, we don't take more than what we're going to use. Yeah. And we always share more than what we keep. And that's really, that's really important to, that's really important to us. Um, And it's the same with deer, you know, I get a deer for an elder and then I, I get a deer for myself. And we talked about this, you know, our, our opening day. It's like, oh, it's opening day. We got to go out. It's like, well, it's opening day, but we're still putting up fish. We still got yeah. dried fish we're working on. <laughs> so we'll get go out for deer when we're done with fish. And, yeah. and I usually get one for me and one for an elder. And then when we harvest a deer, we keep the stomach and prepare the stomach mm-hmm. and have fried deer stomach. You keep the heart and the liver. We pack it out whole. So we make, we call it a clinket backpack. Yeah. And, that's an- and pack it out whole and you put the heart and liver and stomach inside of its belly when you're packing it out. And so it doesn't, you know, fall out and yeah. And then we save the cape and I use that for moccasin making and hat making in the winter and, mm-hmm. and all of the deer is used. The uh, hoofs can be used to make regalia and well yeah. uh, you you've shown some of that on your channel. And the cool part of this is so uh, if you go out, it's AK Moosey, right? Yeah, is your channel that we're, yep. yeah, that we're talking about. Um, but you have a calendar that is so different than the traditional Western calendar, right? Uh, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, and December. Well, <laughs> on your channel or your, your page, you are able to present how the Tlingit, if you want to call it a calendar, the seasonal flow of things, it starts in March. Yeah, it's really, it is a seasonal flow. Actually, I'm going to sidebar before we get into the calendar. I forgot. 
We carry the deer out whole too because we use the bones to make deer bone soup. That's one of my favorite meals. And cut the leg bones and we freeze them in a pack with like stew meat. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we eat the marrow and then we save the whole neck, the spine and everything. And that goes into your deer bone soup packs. So we eat the spinal cord and everything. Everything is, yeah, neck, neck soup is so good with the whole deer neck. Really? Yeah. It's like the best. You would never hear that. Oh yeah. And we get the big knuckle bones and like suck the marrow right out of it. You got to plug the hole on the knee bone so it can create that. (laughs) (laughs) Some people use a straw, but my dad taught me to like get the bones like really hot out of the pot. Uh-huh. You know, and you have your bowl and then you have like your bone sticking out of it. And then you take that knuckle bone and you hit it upside down on a spoon and it will, the marrow will all come out. Really? Oh, man. <laughs> so that's a, that's a sidebar. I could not forget that. I would be not happy with myself uh, if I didn't talk about my one of my favorite meals. So deer the bone, deer bone soup and neck, yeah. neck, neck soup. Do you call it neck roast or do you call it deer neck soup? Yeah, I just call Whatever. it neck, neck bone neck soup. soup. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so one of sometimes while we're processing a deer in the fall, it's cold, you know, we'll take just take the neck and make the soup while we're processing. Oh, wow. And it'll be huh. on the stove, and then we can eat it while we're doing that. Yeah. But the uh, harvest, the calendar, the, the seasonal flow, you were spot on when you referenced that. And, and it it really didn't resonate with me until after our conversation I was thinking about my niece uh-huh. and we were driving in the car one time and you know our 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 harvest season starts with the seal in March in preparation for the herring row spawn or the the herring spawn mm-hmm. so herring row on kelp and we also have herring row on hemlock trees. Mm-hmm. And during that time of year, it's always really interesting weather. It will be hailing and snowing, and then it'll be sunny and 60 degrees, and then it'll be freezing, freezing rain. And it's very unpredictable weather. And that's how we know it's herring egg time. <laughs> so one time the weather was really crazy and she was, you know, five years old and we're driving in the car and she goes, it's herring, it's herring egg time. <laughs> so she has learned, you know, kind of that seasonal calendar and what comes with yeah. what weather. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I said that's, not yet. It is hailing, but good. I was like, that's a good observation. Yeah, and and so that's an observation that is taught and learned through this this method of teaching and, and passing this knowledge on. That it, it, so the reason it's fascinating to maybe it it really is to you. It probably seems very predictable, very consistent. You know, okay, we do seal in March and then at a certain tide and a certain wind, we go and do herring spawn and row. And and then in May, we do, you know, whatever else it is, June, July. And you're walking through that calendar with me. And I know every one of these highlights of the calendar, how we could probably spend 
20 minutes on each of them. Yeah. So Uh, the, the, the most, I think the most like anticipated time of year for me anyway, or, and my family is the herring egg time. So we get a seal in usually in mid-March in preparation for the spawn. And we know the spawn's going to take place towards the end of March and the first two weeks of April. And it, it just depends on, you know, the tides, the temperature. Usually the herring spawn after a really big tide after it blows southeast. So we can look at the tide and look at, you know, the big minuses or the big fluctuations and kind of predict the spawn, but you never really know for sure. Okay. So we want to make sure we get our seal and like we had talked about earlier, make the seal oil because we use that as a condiment on the herring eggs when we prepare them. And so a lot of our recipes involve other traditional foods or incorporating those ingredients into our meals instead of, you know, bottled condiments. Um, (laughs) And so um, it's really something to look forward to once that harvest season starts, it just doesn't stop. And then after you get your deer in the fall time, which is the last harvest, we Mm -hmm. live out of our freezers and our pantries for the winter months. And that's when also with the materials that I've gathered. So the seal pelts, the deer leather, and the materials that you have, you know, harvested throughout those warmer months. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so it starts with seal in March and then it goes into the herring spawn, which you've probably seen on my page. We cut down adolescent hemlock trees and we submerge them into the spawn and the herring really like to spawn on the the needles and so we harvest roe that way and then we freeze herring roe but it's really best fresh so we we share a lot of it and then we go into harvesting black seaweed usually in may and then may and june we get beach greens just a little sea asparagus that grows on the on the beaches around here. Yeah. And then we are getting into our fish, so king salmon and then sockeye, then coho come in. Coho's like the it's the last fish to come in, so we usually reserve coho eggs to make what is called Indian cheese, so it's like a fermented coho eggs that actually turns into the texture of cheese and we do that in the fall time i actually asked why we use coho eggs and my dad said it's it's because of the time of year we're done drying fish we're done putting up all the other fish and so then we can focus on making indian cheese which is when the cohos run and then we also eat uh, mature dog salmon eggs and make akira and My dad likes to get a creek humpy every year. You know, the humpies that look like zombies up in the creek and then make boiled fish. It tastes different than an an ocean humpy. Because most people say, ah, no, those humpies, pink salmon, as they're sometimes called. Those are not even the bears will eat those things. Yeah, he likes to get a creek humpy and make boiled fish late. And then 
Yeah. And then we go into our deer season, which is, you know, we went through that. We make sure we keep the stomach and the mm-hmm. organs. We keep the bones, the cape, and and we utilize all of it. Yeah. So somewhere along the way here, you're also catching halibut. Uh, yeah, we you, usually you catch halibut in the warmer months, like right around when we're fishing king salmon, you know, we'll be done with our beach greens and starting to catch kings and we'll set the nuh and get a halibut. But we mainly p- process halibut by making dried fish. So mm-hmm. we dry the halibut the same way we we dry salmon. I mean, we don't brine it, but we make dried halibut and we we don't really freeze it. It's yeah, it's one of our least favorite fish to freeze That's and so eat. Crazy. I know, <laughs> I know, because people are like, "Oh, halibut, I love it." I'm like, "We will happily share with you." It's not that we don't like it. We just we have access to the most amazing foods and we want to enjoy all of them. And one of our cultural ways of putting up halibut is by drying it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we really love to do. Yeah. Because I've seen it, the end product when you dry it, it almost looks like strands of honeycomb. <laughs> the, yeah. the color, it, the color it dries to. And uh, just, I, I've never tried dried halibut. It's maybe. really good. It's, some of the foods we prepare, you have to um, like disconnect the smell like from your brain because it will smell really strong, but it will taste mild. Like seal smells very, very pungent, but the taste of seal oil is is pretty mild. Hmm. And same with dried halibut, it smells very strong and it tastes really good. So yeah, huh. we're not scared to try. Yeah, just. <laughs> try new things and get past that. I think have rewarding experiences. Uh, the audience is probably saying, look, we know Randy is the most finicky eater in the Are world. Are you? Oh, I am. Oh, I've, my goodness. I would have never guessed. But when it comes to wild foods, I will try anything. Uh, you know, one of the indigenous people from way up north one time uh, brought whale to an, a, a thing I was at. And I tried that. Yeah, it's an acquired that, taste. I like yeah. whale. Whale is actually more. I like it better raw versus cooked. I felt like it was a more yeah. mild tasting when it was raw. Yeah, it, it was raw, uh, and uh, he could tell that I was like, like <laughs> "Here, try this." And there was some some type of oil that they would dip it in. Probably seal oil. I, I thought he said seal oil. But the seal but, oil up north is rendered differently than the way we render it. We cook it. Oh, okay. And my friends up north will render it cold and let it, it kind of ferments as it renders out. It, okay. It's kept in like a cold area in a container and then the oil is scooped off the top. I don't, okay. Yeah, I don't want to inappropriately like speak on their process because I don't really know it that well, but I do know it's different than ours and it does taste a little bit different, but good for you. Protocol, you eat what's in front of you and you make sure you're respectful. And if someone asks you to try something, you try it. Yeah. I, uh, (laughs) I tried it and then I tried it with the seal oil. My dad uh, says, well, 
I'm glad you tried it. I don't see you going back for seconds. I heard him tell <laughs> my auntie that who had never tried seal cracklings before. And I said, oh, did she like them? And he said, well, yeah, she, you know, protocol, you, she tried it, but I didn't see her going back for seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I was laughing. Oh, well, I did not go back for seconds. I, <laughs> I can see where it's an acquired taste, but it's fa- it was fascinating to hear the story of how how it fills this very important role in their food uh, security. Food, you know, their just their nutrition. There, it's it, as they he's telling the story. Nutritional powerhouses. These yeah. these foods, you don't need a lot of them, and that's why, like we talk about over harvesting, you really don't need a lot of these traditional foods to sustain, you know, yeah. your family. Cause just the, the smallest amount of seal meat has like 250 times the amount of iron and nutrients than a uh, beef, the same yeah. quantity. Wow. So you can just eat really small bits of it and feel not hungry or feel like you have energy. Yeah. Well, I actually, when I ate that knock-tuck, I felt like I was on fire. I was, <laughs> I don't know what is in that, but I just oh like, goodness. I, I felt my whole body like, man, I, I need the air conditioner <laughs> on and it's February. <laughs> I don't know if, if it's just me or if that's a normal response to something that's that rich and bad yeah, and It does make else. you feel good. You can definitely overdo it and probably not feel good, but yeah, you just need a little <laughs> bit and you're like, wow, I feel it's so good for your cells and that, yeah. yeah, like you said, food food security is really important. It's it's you know, our people definitely experience um, a threat to traditional food security, just the cost uh-huh. of, you know, the cost of shipping here is, and the cost of gas, um, yeah. access to grocery stores or high quality ingredients is an issue. So making sure that they have access to traditional foods is imperative to our well being, not just from a health perspective, but like mental health and, Mm-hmm. And just our connection to our culture, it's, it's a lot of it is through food and harvesting and putting up these foods and doing it together and sharing. It, it brings everything full circle. Yeah. Well, when I've been up there deer hunting, the salmon berries and huckleberries, uh, it takes me a long time to go very far because I'm just sitting there like eat candy. So... Are there a lot of the berries and other, I guess, non-animal foods that? Oh yeah, that we are didn't really even important? mention those in the in the harvest flow calendar. So yeah, yeah, we have you know the salmon berries are plentiful, like you said. You know, my dad grew up here. He was born in 1949, so he was 10 years old when Alaska became a state. So he <laughs> he um, I know he grew up like just experiencing this history of Alaska that I will never know. Um, but he, he didn't grow up wealthy and food or lack thereof was always an issue for him and his family. So he said, he just remembers like walking down the street and with his siblings and just gorging on berries because they were always Mm -hmm. hungry. And 
you know, if you didn't get a deer, it was like, it was very devastating because they're always just hungry. And, and so, yeah, yeah, we do pick salmon berries a lot and we'll go on walks just to pick berries. And then, you know, we have huckleberries and blueberries. And then our latest ripening berry is, we call them smiley berries, but mm. the official name for them are salal berries. Okay. And that's a fall berry. It's more like a low bush berry. And when you're hunting in October, you can still pick the ripe ones. They're really good. Okay. Well, this whole arc of of the food calendar is it's fascinating for me to learn more about it and apply it to probably every traditional culture that has ever existed. You know, it was only a few hundred years ago where we decided that, oh, let's just be agrarian farmers and let's plop down in one place and let's, you know, irrigate and fertilize and plant crops and whatever. Your people must have moved around the landscape to capitalize on where the most abundant of these foods were happening at each time. I mean, was that... Yeah, so there's different camps for different seasons. So Fish Egg Camp was always right outside of Craig. It's called Fish Egg Island. So there, my dad said that that was like Fish Egg Camp and you can actually see canoe runs on the beach at a low tide. You know, if, oh, wow. if you're not looking for them, you would miss them, but they're, um, you know, like V-shaped runs on the beach where all the big rocks were moved so the canoes okay. could like easily be pulled up on the beach at fish egg camp so those are there and then if you travel to the outlying islands around the fish creeks you'll see the historical fish traps yeah and where all the rocks were moved out from the area and stacked up in like a half moon shape yep and then when the tide would come in the fish would all go in there and then they there's a little opening where uh, my people would fill in that gap and the fish would be trapped inside that half moon you know fish trap and there'd be you know six seven eight of them on the beach right around the fish creeks so those are still there and that's those are places where we actually pick beach greens they grow really well in the areas where those rocks were cleared out and so when you're there picking okay. greens you think about the people who were there before you and how they got fish and how they harvested from the same areas and how they left didn't leave a footprint we're still able to go back and and do those same things in the same yeah. areas and they actually had smokehouses too at their fish camps which were okay. actually uh, destroyed by the U.S. Forest Service, and okay. they late they had later issued an apology for doing that. But those are were typically found throughout the entire region of Southeast mm. Alaska at the fish camp sites. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, I know of one fish camp that I did not know what it was, and a guy Jim Bachtel, uh, who lives not too far from you, who's really helped open my eyes to the level of indigenous uh, history in the islands of the Southeast. We were at a place 
and I was it was low tide, and I was remarking how it was just a strange shape of big rocks, like somebody had put them there. And Jim says, well, yeah, you not had that's a fish trap. <laughs> I'm like, what, what do you mean? I love he, seeing them. Yeah. It, it was near the mouth of a small creek. Uh, and Jim's like, well, when the tide comes in, they would go close that gap right there. Mm-hmm. And then when the tide would seep out through these big rocks, the fish would be stuck in there. And he said, somewhere around here, there probably was a smokehouse. And he painted the picture and and to see it like that and be scratching my head saying, what the heck is that? Somebody just get bored and they go and put these rocks out in this big shape like that. Uh, It was fascinating to me. Then the fish, yeah, were processed. And then to transport the foods, they're stored in Bentwood boxes. I don't know if you've seen the... They're made of cedar, big bentwood boxes. That's how dried fish was stored and moved uh-huh. from location to location on cedar canoes. Oh, so, really, yeah. Wow. Well, having spent some time in the rough waters out there, you wouldn't catch me out there in a cedar canoe. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty just... interesting. We've actually found, you know, um, like the rocks that were used from the nuh that our people had made and you can still find tools at the different camps where okay they were used for you know various things mm-hmm. it's pretty neat you know because this was before before guns before right. modern tools and i do want to learn more about um our people and how they hunted and my dad talks about deadfalls and how they were constructed and that's something i really want to learn more about uh-huh well, like the, the deadfall traps and things like that. Right. Yeah, they were very effective. Uh-huh. <laughs> so neat. Uh, yeah. our, you see old pictures of our people wearing like wolf hides and, you know, bear hides as regalia or, you know, using their teeth or claws as, as regalia. And I was just like, well, how did they, mm-hmm. how did they harvest? Or I asked questions like, about the materials used before knives and obsidian was used a lot for blades. Uh, There were obsidian places nearby where they could find it. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Because down here, a lot of the obsidian was scarce and then only in certain locations and it became a valuable trade item. Yeah. And, and, People would would come from hundreds and hundreds of miles to get obsidian because it would make such great tools for them for knives and for sharp edges and broadheads and yeah. arrow points and stuff. There, it, um, materials were used as trade items here too. Um, you know, up north is where um, it's called hooligan grease is made, which mm-hmm. is a fermented yeah. fish oil, and then we. We, we trade people up north, uh-huh. like for, I sent, even today, send box of fish eggs up north in trade for seal earth, hoogan grease. Really? Yeah. So oh, it's just, man. it's still, we still <laughs> practice, you know, the customary trade. It's just a little bit differently because we can fly right. our foods back and forth. And there's different grades of hooligan grease. So like the first scoop would be the more mild, more light colored, and then. The grades go from there, you know, it gets darker and more 
strong tasting. So yeah, and for people who don't know, hooligan is a fish. Yeah, it's like it's a candle, like a candle fish, very oily, yeah. a smelt. Yeah, yeah, very much reminds me of smelt uh, in appearance, and I've not eaten them. Uh, oh, they're really good, uh, fried, are whole. They? Okay, like that's how we that's how we do smelt. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, same way we do smell. One time Jim and I were goofing around on an island and we found a very large cave. Uh, we went in there and there, we're a long ways from sea level. It's a long hike to this cave. He found a beaver head in there. He found bones of deer, of of every thing imaginable i'm like jim how did these get in here did, did beaver climb up here and then you know climb a thousand feet from a creek and die in here and you're like no you not had these are places where indigenous people were living for thousands of years they they took advantage of whatever shelters and and other stuff were there and so again i felt really stupid and ignorant but he's so tolerant of my ignorance so well and Uh, you know you have a willingness to learn which which i appreciate um yeah i've really appreciated our our conversations and you know you talking about incorporating you know that messaging into your into your mm-hmm. messaging, which is, you know, we aren't historical people. We're still very much here. These are our right. ancestral homelands and we still steward these lands today. So as you travel and as you hunt and I really encourage people to know what ancestral homelands they're living on or they're, they're hunting on throughout mm-hmm. the entire country, not just, you know, Southeast Alaska, but, and really making sure you honor the people and and do what what you can to you know uplift our culture and our voices and and work mm-hmm. with us and that's what I've really appreciated about my relationship with you and and your yeah. questions I welcome them and and thank well, you for I, welcoming mine because I yeah. also don't yeah I'm so immersed in the culture here and I I this is my daily life and I really appreciate mm-hmm. hearing a different perspective and yeah. yeah. Well, maybe even maybe we should have done this background at the start other but you left southeast Alaska to go to college. Was it in California? Yeah. So I grew yeah. up I was born and raised here and we don't have a college here. I live on an island and my town has about a thousand people in it so it's just the thing you do if you're not going to stay, you're, you leave and you go to yeah. school and you kind of find your way, so to speak. So I did. I went to college in California and and then I just wanted to go to like the warmest places. <laughs> so after that, I went to Florida uh-huh. and I always felt uh, a pull to come back. I I was really glad that I went and explored different places and and met new people and immersed myself in a different culture and way of life. Mm-hmm. But the older I got, the more, the stronger that pull was and I knew I just needed to be home. 
And then when I came home and started reconnecting with my culture, I really felt like this is where I need to be and this is what I need to be doing. And I felt whole again. I didn't feel incomplete before. I just didn't really feel at home. And so there's this, um, what do I want to call it? Like there's this path of, you know, you go down in, in your journey and some people might say things like, I can't believe you're moving home or, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do for work there? And, and yeah. for me, you know, I want to make sure the work that I'm doing is meaningful and, and it's not about the amount of money I make or like what my title is. Mm-hmm. I really want to do what I'm doing now, which is carrying on my cultural traditions and learning as much as I can because the people that came before me really didn't have the opportunities that I have now. And they've struggled a lot more than I have or could ever. Mm-hmm. And we we all have a responsibility to make sure we do our part. And, and that's what I'm doing. And I feel like I'm just in my infancy. <laughs> and so I have so much more to learn and so much more growing to do. And and that's what I look forward to doing here. So I am yeah. glad I left and I'm, I'm really glad that I came back. Yeah. Well, you might feel like you're in your infancy, as you called it. I feel like you're this master, this, you're already <laughs> at whatever point you feel you're at for, for the person from the outside who's trying to learn, learn a lot from indigenous cultures. I feel like... I could learn so much from you and from your dad and uh, just others. I, 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 I use the term, it fascinates me and it does, but it, it answers a lot of questions for me. And hunting has been a way for me to have a lot of questions presented to me that I never really had the answers for. And I don't know that I'll get the answers, but growing up where I did, uh, I had two tribal members who were good friends of mine, uh, and I spent a lot of time with them, and I was always fascinated by them. So we had a reservation. Uh, I had actually two reservations within close, not too far driving distance. So we had you know kids at our school who were enrolled tribal members, and I I felt so blessed, especially now, how I got an exposure to them and their view of the world and the, the way that they were brought up at a young age. So it created this curiosity in me about, wow, this is really cool. Um, and so wherever I travel, I'm, I'm always thinking about these things. And there's probably been two places where I've traveled that really struck me and caused me to ask more questions of myself and try to find more answers. One is, and neither of these places will ever be revealed to the world. I will go to my grave with them. One, I am elk hunting in a place in Montana. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, wow, that looks like, you know, what we call a buffalo jump. Uh, not really a jump, but a pishkin where they, the buffalo had come over. And I never really gave up much thought. Well, I'd camped there three years in a row. And 
I think it was my third year, I'm looking at this great big flat rock that's probably 100 feet long, and it's got a bunch of duff and dirt and, and pine needles growing in it. And I see this depression that's holding some water, like about the size of a soup bowl. And I get to looking around, and there's a whole bunch more of them. And so I dig all the pine needles out of these. And then I start finding these really round, polished rocks right near them. Well, even as dumb as I am, I'm like, oh, now I get it. Run the bison over the cliff. This is where you are processing the meat, grinding pemmican, doing all of this stuff. And uh, it's so obvious. I took pictures of it, and I've shown the pictures to some people, and they're like, where is that? I'm like, you'll never know. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Some things you, yeah. Some places so, deserve to stay sacred, you know? Yeah. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, here I am with all the modern technologies of a hunter. How would I have handled How would I have converted bison into food 3,000 years ago or however long people had been there converting bison into food? And so I don't have those answers. It, it just caused me to, this point of reflection of, wow. Here I am. I I am not, as much as I want to think I'm on an exploration, I am hardly the first hunter who's ever sat here waiting for an elk to come by. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then another one of these, uh, I had an archery pronghorn tag in Arizona, and we're up on this big mesa, and we see out in this dried playa, this dry lake bed, kind of two volcanic rock, the I'll call them walls. No one built them, but I'm like, I'm going to go out to the point of one of those rocks where everything pinches down here, and I'm going to see if there's a place to ambush a pronghorn. Well, I get out there, and I'm digging around. I find this little like square wall buried in a bunch of dirt, but with flat rocks. Get to digging around, find some pottery find some broadheads i'm like well i'm not the first guy who's ever decided i'm gonna hunt here and ambush an antelope that comes through this narrow gap so those are the kind of things that in my travels of hunting has caused me to think about this a lot yeah and we're all it, on we share the land you know we yeah. have always shared yeah. the, we are a part of the land as much as it is a part of us i say like People talk about land ownership. You know, I belong mm-hmm. to the land. And, yeah. you know, we share this land and, and we all take care of it. And, and just seeing those things or coming across those things in your hunting experiences really does put it into perspective that, you know, some people think that history, you know, like when we talk about the nah, they go, oh, those must have been around as long as rope was around. It's like, no, the rope was created from cedar. <laughs> you know, like that's not when things started to come into existence, but it is, yeah. it is, yeah, it is an experience to think back and think about 10, you know, 10,000 years ago or more and, and how people lived you know in reciprocity with the land and and the spaces that that you visit and and that's where it gets me and the purpose i hope that people start to come to and maybe they already are but the purpose of this podcast is my mindset and my fascination if you look at my library it is just about 
<laughs> it is so much uh, native history, indigenous history. I'm fascinated by it. But it gets me thinking, how is it that we have landscapes that people have hunted for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and I'm not taking lessons from that? Or what? maybe the question is, what are the lessons I can take from that? And what can I learn from that? How, how could culture sustainably exist on this landscape? as you call it, reciprocally. And in the last few hundred years, the landscapes have really taken a beating, as did people dependent upon those landscapes and the species dependent on those landscapes. And so I just feel like there's so much to be learned by studying and trying to understand the way that people sustainably existed on these landscapes. And a lot of times you can look at it and say, well, here's what we're doing wrong. (laughs) How did we get this far out in the ditch here? Right. And just one generation, it's just changed so much. And, and like you had said, like you see what we're doing and you, you know, you're fascinated. Well, I definitely want to speak to the fact that um, there are so many more people out there in not only in my community and the region that I live in and throughout the rest of the world who are knowledge keepers and, and they know so much more than me. And when, you know, we talked about me going off to school and I came back, my dad would say like, you need to go back and finish your degree. And I'm like, I am, I'm I'm (laughs) doing, I am getting my master's degree right now next to you on this boat. And he said it for (laughs) years and he's finally stopped saying uh-huh. that and and now when we get a seal he'll be like okay ceiling 101 and he like makes <laughs> jokes like he's a professor right and i've been like getting my phd but <laughs> and the dogs are with us you know he's like these are this is my class and and you know he has a really great sense of humor but sometimes i feel isolated and then when i'm in in like i'm doing this alone and then I'll be at a at a group function or you know at a community gathering and I'll look around and and see all of the people who have this certain set of skills and knowledge that they carry and that they bring with them and pass down and and all the kids are there and it really gives me hope because there are so many people out there who are doing what we're doing and more and I really yeah. want to make sure I credit those people and recognize and acknowledge them um, because they may not have a social media platform. They may be doing it, you know, in their family, in their community. And that's Mm -hmm. just as meaningful and as important. But um, what you can learn, I think, and what I, I practice is, is instead of thinking of things as like, oh, we need to manage the land. We need to manage these resources. You know, these the land has managed itself forever. Mm-hmm. I think what we could do is think about our relationship with the land and our relationship yeah. with the resources and how we can be good stewards of the land that we're on and make sure we leave things better than the way we found it. So... You know, we talked about 
opening day or or the hunting calendar versus like our harvest seasonal mm-hmm. flow and just because you have a limit of something that you can harvest it doesn't mean you need to take that limit and you know we when fish are in the rivers we leave the fish alone those fish are spawning and you need fish to get fish yeah and you know when i go out and i hunt seals and sea otter i don't hunt the ones that have pups yeah and just make sure you're being a good land steward and and really have a good relationship with the land and when i when i refer to land i mean land water air yeah animals the, the entire landscape mm-hmm. and the, yeah and um you know make sure you respect those things like you would respect your family so i mean are you gonna you know if you see a a seal that has a pup are you going to hunt that seal or if you see salmon in the streams and you know the bear are eating are you going to go in there and fish and scare the bear away they're trying to eat and and get fat for their hibernation you know and just make sure you're mindful of of what you're doing and 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 the footprint that you're leaving and I think we can all do that collectively mm-hmm. and still maintain our ways of life and and also a respect for the land and it doesn't have to come down to a political view or a religious view or a cultural view it's just the view of ourselves mm-hmm. well when we talked last time i wrote some notes down and there are two points that have on my the audience can't see my notebook here but i have one and you just touched on one of them that had a big red asterisk by it i wrote down don't manage the land or the resources we should focus on managing our relationship with that land and those resources you just said that way better than i ever could have explained it yeah it's Uh, like science is you know, we think about science and, and all this, which is, I know science is important, but science mm-hmm. is the last thing to arrive on this earth. We had traditional ecological knowledge for over, you know, 10,000 years that, you know, our people practice. And and I really do think it's important to make sure we incorporate that knowledge and, you know, our elders who have been here through all these generations and personally experienced the change and, and talk with them Mm -hmm. and, and make sure that traditional ecological knowledge has a seat at the table when it comes to all of these topics that we're discussing, you know, land relationships, Mm -hmm. water relationships, resource relationships. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing that you said, and I hope the audience who are, you know, the title of the podcast is called Hunt Talk Radio. So I assume a lot of them are hunters. Um, <laughs> but hunting in my family they has could just always... Be talkers. I'm just kidding. There you go. <laughs> no, and they're not hunters, they're talkers. Uh, maybe. Uh, in, in my family... All of the hunting knowledge has been a generational transfer of, of knowledge, not too dissimilar 
from what you talk about, right? I mean, dad would take me out, we'd go grouse hunting or deer hunting, or my uncle would take me out, we'd go beaver trapping or whatever. And I didn't get this from reading a book. YouTube wasn't around at that time. It was very hands-on. Here's what you do. Here's how you do it. Here's all the preparation steps to get everything ready. And then, oh, if you had some good luck, here's all of the post-hunt or or post-harvest steps to make sure you take care of, of all of this or that. And you said something that struck with me because I feel strongly to this. You said nobody is self-taught. We are a part of those who taught us. Mm-hmm. We carry those people with us. So, you know, going back to my me introducing myself and telling the story about how I got my traditional name and and my dad's clan and my mom's clan. And, you know, I'm a, well, just for example, I'm a fur sewer. So when I, mm-hmm. when I make somebody a gift or, you know, sometimes I sell these items to recover the cost of, you know, tanning or gas for hunting. When I give them that item, I make sure that I tell them who, where I learned to sew and how I started my craft. And so that story stays with that item. And I hope, you know, that when they talk about this hat or whatever it may be, they also share that story. And that's how a lot of our teachings are done. That's how our history or sorry, not our history. That's how our cultural traditions stay alive is through the storytelling and having that connection with who taught you, how did you learn, where were you, what was going on during that time, who was with you, mm-hmm. who taught them. And all of that organically comes out like at fish camp. Um you know, my dad talks about the old ladies and how he wasn't allowed to do this, but, you know, only they could cut the fish. And, and you know, and then it. he said, you're doing what you need to be doing. You're standing here and you're watching. And so he makes sure you don't feel bad if you, if you can't cut like he can cut. And, and all of that, like you said, it's done through a generational pass down. So, you know, yeah. I started skin sewing. Uh, I actually had regalia made. My parents had it made for me out of the deer leather that my dad had harvest, harvested from the deer when I was little. And I started skin sewing when I was eight years old. I was using the deer leather scraps um, from my regalia. And um, I just felt like I, I really... I'm artistic by nature. So I just get in there and play around with the deer leather. And then, you know, I I had Barbies. So I actually, (laughs) I tell this story, but I didn't know till later how controversial Barbie was. And and everyone's like, oh, Barbie's bad. You know, in my teen years, I remember hearing about how Barbie would create this like unrealistic body image or or hair or Mm -hmm. eye color that all girls couldn't or wanted to be like, or, or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. um, I never thought that way. I had started skin sewing when I was eight years old and I was making my Barbie regalia and I made her a deer skin dress to match mine, (laughs) which I actually still have that Barbie, but instead Uh, of wanting to look like Barbie, I just tried to make Barbie look like me. (laughs) 
I made her a headdress and a buckskin dress and a belt oh. and and we had matching regalia together and <laughs> and then I had learned um, from my aunt my aunt Deb she taught me how to s- sew skin which through through me learning that I also learned you know my dad shared stories about my great grandma who I'd never met who was a skin sewer so I feel strongly connected to her and like Mm-hmm. that has been passed down to me in our family and I'm taking after her. And he would tell me how, you know, if I complained about a seal skin being too thick, he'd be like, well, your great grandma used to have to chew on it to soften it up to get the needle through. I'm like, okay, <laughs> point taken. And he's like, he would send me to the beach and with a seal skin in a gunny sack and they would have to walk on it over the rocks to soften it because she would self, oh, wow. self tan her own hides. And he tells uh-huh. me a story about how she was gifted her first hide and how she just lit up. She'd never seen a professionally tan hide before. And, and so I do think about all of those things when I create and all of those thoughts go into my work and that's important for me to make sure that whoever receives these items, they receive that good energy. They receive all of the teachings that went into, you know, to me. And, and that's where that notion comes from. Like no one is self-taught. I, I really believe that we've all had teachers throughout our lives that help, you know, make us who we are. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for my teachers that I've had in my life and that I still have. Yeah. I'm, I'm and the they really way. deserve, they deserve the, I don't know if you can hear my dog barking. Someone I, came I down the hear, but That's all right. We, okay. we like dogs on this okay. podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, they deserve the credit for, you know, for that knowledge and, and them passing that down to me. So you had said I was humble before, but it's really like, I wouldn't be who I am without the teachers that I have. Yeah. That's, that comes through so obvious in, in the way that you present everything, Heather. Uh, and it's, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm impressed by it. I, I they just, the, these statements that you make that you might be like, well, what's so striking about that, Randy? Well, uh, a couple things. One, that you're making them. Two, they're so relatable to me. And three, I think they're relatable to any tradition, any culture that is generational transfer of knowledge that hunting is. Uh, even today, hunting is, for the most part, a transfer of knowledge. And, you know, in the hunting world, we complain, oh, we're losing this connection. We aren't having as many hunters. Well, when we have big disruptions in our family structures, you know, whether it's through single parent households or whether it's because now the mobility of Americans, we go and live a thousand miles apart. So the father, grandfather, aunt, niece relationships of, of whatever it is related to our hunting, our food, our fishing, it's hard to maintain those over thousands of miles. And so mm-hmm. all of these things that we say, oh, why is this happening? Well, if we kind of simplify it, there's 
probably some reasons of why it happens compared to how it was in the past of these generational teachings. And I, I just think it's, you need a t-shirt. Nobody is self-taught. <laughs> My dad, I see the Forbes, like self-made billionaire, whatever. And I'm like, are you so I don't know. Uh, anyway, that's a whole nother. But yeah, my dad my dad has talked about that loss of connection, like the disconnect in in our society and and how important the connection to your culture and your roots are, no matter what it is, and just learning where you came from. Mm-hmm. It really gives you a, a sense of purpose. And I shouldn't say you, I should say for me. Mm-hmm. knowing where I came from and knowing that I'm representing my clan and my people. And it gives me a, a sense of purpose and I make sure that I won't, you know, represent them in a way that is, I hope that is meaningful and, and respectful. Um, and when I don't know where I was going with this. You had talked about, um, oh, hunting. So hunting isn't just about hunting, right? It's it's about, um, you know, you're building that relationship with the land while you're hunting. You're getting food for your winter supply or your family. And then the materials that you can harvest from whatever you're hunting, you know, make leather or fur items, those are sustainable, renewable materials. And you're going to harvest something for your food. You should use the materials to make, you know, moccasins or clothing or, or whatever. And so that's what we do. And the moccasins I made when I was 12, they just had a hole wear through them. So now I'm old I'm 37 so the moccasins are 25 years old and they finally wore out but that just goes to show how long lasting these materials are Mm -hmm. and they yeah when we talked previously you said that when you first started showing fur and materials made of fur that you got some negative feedback and at first it kind of struck you a certain way and then you said no i'm I'm not gonna back away from this i'm uh, yeah. this is who i am and what we are i i'm in effect giving in to the pressures that i'm trying to tell a different story from yep so you nailed it i, I in in the beginning um, you know, and I'm not a big social media person. I have Instagram and it just sort of took off unexpectedly. And so I, I went with it. But on that journey, I found myself a couple years ago kind of censoring the content that I was posting to fit what. I guess, into a certain box where I thought people would accept it. And then Mm -hmm. that bothered me, even though I continued to do it, it bothered me about myself. Yeah. And I had posted about hunting a seal and, you know, this is something we do every year. And, and some people were writing not so nice things. And I stopped posting about harvesting marine mammals 
And then that bothered me because I was going, I was really, I'm very reflective. So I was, I thought about it for a while and I realized in doing that, in silencing myself, I was silencing cultural traditions of mine and my people that should be celebrated and shared. Mm -hmm. And I now have the confidence and, and I feel comfortable. I have a voice and I feel comfortable using it because I don't want to be a part of that culture that silenced our, our people. And I want to make sure that I uplift our voices and our culture and share it in the way that it deserves to be shared. So right. I, I now share about making seal oil and making the intestines and, and using all parts of the seal, even the flippers, which my dad is like, you are not going to share that, Ari. I said, yes, I am. You did. And, <laughs> and people are like, wow. And so I really feel like it's grown into a space where people know us and, and they want to know more about these processes, whether it's working with sea otter. And I, I showed a like an overview of how they're fleshed and, and the beginning to end process of you know, the skinning, the bleshing, the salting, the hides, and then they get tanned and then they get, you know, turned into blankets or, or you know, hats. And and luckily, I shouldn't say it out loud, people haven't shamed me for it, but even if they do, they can go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't know if you realize, I, I think you do, either. you realize the, the profoundness of, of you realizing that and saying, I'm not going to be put in this box or I'm not going to let myself feel the pressure of this box because the thing that you've told me you didn't want to dwell on is, you know, some ugliness of the, of the past mm-hmm. uh, where your cultures, your traditions, your, you know, the faith, spirituality of your people, your language was confined was disrupted to the nth degree you know you go back Mm -hmm. to you know what probably were some well-intended people would come and take the young people in in indigenous communities and bring them to the missions and try to teach them you know christianity and all that and in the process you lose your your language you lose, especially a culture that's as orally transferred through history as as most indigenous cultures are so much there yeah so change. much so much has happened and and i don't i definitely don't want to present in a way that's like overlooking that or discounting that at all. That's not at all what I want because that that was devastating to our people and and so much has been lost. Mm -hmm. And I think about that all the time. You know, it really, sometimes I cry when I think about it and what our people had went through. Um, But when I said that, what I, what I really truly meant is that I want to focus on whatever I can do in the time that I have to revitalize the culture for 
the next seven generations so so they can so they can have that you know um and and I think about how I don't know my traditional language and it makes me sad you know because my grandma was fluent in in our language before she went to the boarding school and she came back and never spoke it again but instead of focusing on that part that was lost I want to focus my time and energy on getting it back yeah well I I I just it, it's I can't tell you how impressive it is that that you are doing that and you are getting your PhD uh, <laughs> contrary to what your dad might say uh, but I'm in the, kindergarten the, I feel oh, like a okay. kindergartner and, and you know what there are so many people with the way you feel you're like oh I've already said this but oh wow I'm around them I'm like oh wow I have so much more to learn but yeah well in this modern world and the media platform that you've had such success in bringing this story and this message, there are these pressures to confine, right? Whether it's the algorithm or whether it's the haters or whoever is going to criticize something you might do. I can't tell you how, (laughs) how, good it it feels to hear you say i'm not going to succumb to that because this is part of what my people have done forever fur and marine mammals were part of what we've done it's part of our culture it's you can't separate us from the the oceans and the the animals that live there and if you don't like this uh, yeah, you yeah it's not going it to change way. what what right. we're doing. We're going to do it anyway. I mean, it's my choice yeah. to share it, and I do share it because I, I believe that we're teaching people, and maybe teaching mm-hmm. people who don't have, like you said, that maybe there's a, a generational break in their family where they may not have a teacher like my dad, and I. Th- I just respect him and love him so much. And he has so much to teach that I want people to be able to learn from him like I do. And yeah, I, I was pretty upset at myself for, for for not sharing about those things because of what other people who I don't even know were saying to me, but I've grown past that. And, you know, I'm a human and I, I have a lot of work to do on myself and growing to do. And that was part of, that's part of it. And I'm glad I've made it past that. And I get to share all the things that I love to do, um, you know, which is skin sewing. It's um, processing furs in the spring. And, you know, I'll have like 50 sea otter that I'm fleshing at a time and and showing <laughs> showing the side because what people were seeing was here's a hat. And it's like yeah. this hat I might, char- you know, charge this much for this hat but you can see why you know you really don't make money you're out there for a week fleshing furs you know and it's and we do my dad tells me like sometimes we do things because we love to do them yeah you know and um that's what it is i love to practice that part of my culture and i love to work with furs 
and you learn something new every time you sew because each fur will have a different stretch um, that you need to account for, a different texture, a different color. And um, oh, you had said something else about the process and I lost I had lost my train of thought. Sorry. Oh, it's, it's just the, the fact that you are willing to say in an affirmative way, this is what I'm here to do and I'm proud of this. And if people don't like it, let them go somewhere else. So, and if I have any advice on, you know, on someone who has media channels, and you do, this is why I think I'm so attracted to your media channels is it's all positive. I, I, you know, people have enough in their life to worry about, to stress them out, to fret about. I want them to come to my channels and learn something, maybe smile, maybe laugh. You know, a lot of times the laughter is at my expense. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of times it's like, like on here, the dog's barking. Someone's like, the kids are yelling in the background. You know, and we just do one take. It's not like, oh, can you cut that again? Can you cut that yeah. again? Cut the fish again. Like it's, yeah. you get one, it's like, okay, here we are. <laughs> and, yeah. and you had talked about fitting in the, like a certain box or a certain fit for um, different you know, there's people doing all kinds of amazing things out there and they may invite me to participate. And I appreciate that, but I, I've realized that I'm not always a good fit for what they're looking for as, as we have conversations surrounding, you know, whatever they're working on. And, and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like you said, staying true to, you know, who you are and, and, and your culture and, and who taught me is really important. And it's not about the number of followers or the number of likes, you know, I just like yeah. want to share how cool my dad is and how much <laughs> he knows and he's funny and, and. You, all of those things, I, I, I can attest, all of those are true based on my time following along and uh i i hope you continue to do it and you don't feel any of those pressures even when you get some goofball who shows up there oh, i can't believe you're doing this or what does the uh, world come to you're skinning yeah. a seal <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was the one of them at stands i was like what is this world anymore i'm like you're right what is this world <laughs> that that's really the answer right it, it should be the question what? to them of <laughs> what is this world it's just funny though and we you know i can laugh about it now and i don't know there's like I was going to pull up your email. I hope I like we can cover any other topics. I really no, I didn't want to focus anything. too heavily on like internet meanies or you know, I'm mm-hmm. definitely not a no. victim and no. I appreciate you, you acknowledging that. No, you know, it's I, just I, out there. It's part of the platform mm-hmm. and right. And and that's where you take it and you're like, no, I'm here to tell a story. I'm not a victim. I'm not, you know, I'm not whatever. I've got 
a story that's important to me and my family and my people. I want to tell that story. And I hope that when this podcast is done, Heather, that not, and I know you don't do it for likes or watch or followers or clicks or whatever. I just hope more people go and follow AK Moosey because of how much depth is there, how much storytelling is intertwined in all of this food, all of these seasonal things, all this full utilization of everything that you guys take from the land or the sea. Any Anyone with a very strong conservation ethic is going to look at that and say, there's a lot to be learned here. So you might think you're just telling your story to small group of people no I, I think this is a story that has so much application so many other places that's right i don't know what i'm going to do to repay the favor but for you to let me impose on you to do this podcast i am so far in your debt that <laughs> Thank somehow you. i'm, I'm going to get it repaid i don't know how but uh that means I so just, much to me i actually well i had asked for your address yesterday because i have a gift for you and and oh. i know you had talked about walking around town in a beaver hat but now yeah. you're going to walk around town in a sea otter hat oh and no you're have to tell the story of, of barbie oh. and how i learned to sew and who taught me and that's yeah. your homework well that's gonna, <laughs> that that is going to go back to that statement heather of we are a part of those who taught us mm-hmm. and, and you're going to help me story tell and and yeah. these yeah, these cultural practices are going to help keep you warm on all your travels and your hunts. And, you know, we didn't even talk about, you know, it's, we talked about taking from the land, but, you know, when we get a deer and this is a, my great grandma taught my dad, she said, you take, she called it the little liver. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, the gallbladder Mm -hmm. and we bury that back into the land when we get a deer and it's Mm -hmm. like giving back to the land because it gave to you and she's like if you do that you'll always get more so there's little practices of making sure you give back to the land and when you you know when you pick berries you don't pick them all from the same area yeah and when you harvest devil's club, which is a medicinal plant, you make sure you leave enough so it can regrow or you replant the stalks that you had cut and not taken so it can huh. reproduce. And so just making sure we, that just like the land relationship and and what you, the relationship you have with the land, you want to make sure you give back to the land. Yeah. Well, as you were telling that story... A lot of this audience knows that I don't collect shed antlers. And Me neither. Some of them have heard the reason why. Peter Rollo, who was one of my close friends growing up, who is, a, uh, like I said, you know, we had quite a few tribal members. He's an enrolled Ojibwe member. Uh, and Peter didn't hunt, but he'd tag along with me. And when we would find an antler, he'd hang it in the tree and he'd, tell me their version of you know this is going to bring us good luck 
you know, and he, he went into some deeper discussions about why and everything. Cause I'm 14 years old. I'm like, Peter, how do you know that's going to bring us good luck? You know, I'm just like so dumb and matter of fact about it. And he's just like, well, trust me. It will. And I can't say if it did or didn't, but now people will watch our content and they'll see me grab a big elk antler and I hang it in a tree. And they're like, don't you know how much that's worth? That you know, that you get fourteen dollars a pound for that thing, and it weighed eight pounds. It's like, no, this is for. I Peter. didn't even know there was a market for those. That's interesting. Oh yeah, down here, <laughs> hunting, collecting shed elk antlers and moose antlers is a big business wow. in the lower forty-eight. So here I am. I just hang them in trees. I, I don't, and a lot of the audiences thinking this guy is crazy he's, he's a fool but he goes back to my experience one it's a way for me to remember peter uh but also to make me think about the lessons that he taught me and some of his siblings taught me mm-hmm. uh about their way of life and their their view of things and so when you were talking about some of this stuff of putting a gallbladder back in the ground because it'll you know bring more deer or or, uh it's a tradition that represents you know something that you're you're foregoing or you're giving back in exchange for what you've been given it kind of how i am with with shed antlers so uh i actually i'm thinking about it i think it's the pancreas but i think i've been calling it a, a gallbladder, a gallbladder. For, and then okay. one of my followers called me out and told me it's a pancreas and I'm like okay oh. well great grandma called it the little liver so <laughs> this, <laughs> That's what thing, it is. this is what we bury <laughs> um, so I think it is actually a pancreas thank you to yeah. whoever told me that <laughs> uh, well whatever it is yeah. You can just pass it on as being the little liver. Yeah, we call it so. the little liver. But yeah, you do learn. You carry those people with you, mm-hmm. and now you, th- you know, that's your connection to your friend when you hunt, and mm-hmm. yeah. that's good. See, not everything, yeah. like with the nuh, and people want to buy those from us. You know, not everything is can be For sold. Sale. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some things just mm-hmm. need have meaning to you, and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I, I whatever I'd get for hauling that shed elk antler out and selling it probably isn't worth the just that moment of reflection and thought about Peter. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just but yeah, it'd be worth some money, but it's worth more to me to hang it in that tree. And then my mind wanders again for another half hour or an hour thinking about so many of these things. And I I know I'm just, I'm grateful that I've been connected to the land through hunting. Uh, I'm thankful for all the people who have taught me so much and really thankful for my grandmother's given me this sense of curiosity. Uh, I just... I'm always interested. I, I, and you probably get tired of stupid questions from people like me. Uh, no, I don't. I, and you know what? I, I, I didn't know you before. And like, I, I didn't want to do like too much research before this because I, I just wanted us to have a conversation, you know, and, and us, mm-hmm. you like us get to know each other through this podcast and I know we had talked before but just the one time 
but you are the first person I've met that has wanted to collaborate on something like this that uh, who was if it, it you don't have an agenda you know you just wanted to share no. what we do and I really appreciate that about you um sure well I'm I'm glad that came across because I I want the world to know your story not not you as an individual but the story that you're telling uh, I think there's so much to be learned from, uh, you know, this traditional knowledge of things that we discount in today's world. Also, just the value of how traditions and cultures are connected, how there's some common fabric or common threads that weave through those fabrics of cultures and food and landscapes. And they're inseparable when you think about it but in our simplistic quote-unquote way of of progress we've discounted all of that and i i feel like i'm so far behind modern society of that but yet i feel comfortable in my view of no there's so much more to be learned that i've i've ignored trying to be part of this modern culture and way of thinking that my last 20 years have kind of been trying to circle back, Mm -hmm. circle back about my own family's history coming here from Finland, circling back to all these cultures that have so much to teach us about sustainable ways uh, and how my food, uh, my acquisition of my food yeah, I could go to the grocery store, you know, and right. buy you could, chicken or egg. Of course, I could do there's whatever. always an easier way. So yeah. one thing that I've really become aware of is the time. And like I say, like decolonizing my sense of time. And of course, there's <laughs> an easier way. There's a faster way. You know, yeah, people use a meat slicer to slice their dried fish strips. And they're the same every time. And you just can freeze a filet and slice it with the meat slicer but we don't do that it's it's for me it's like decolonizing your sense of time and it's like but why would we rush this because doing the process the old way and cutting the strips the old way is part of why we enjoy it and we get to spend time together and hear each other's stories and we don't want to rush that and and we want to make sure that process stays alive and each time you process fish you learn something new because if you think about it you're doing it for one season once a year Mm -hmm. so it's not like you're you know doing this a million times a year you learn something new and and you only get that one season to do it and if you don't do it you won't have your your dried fish so yeah just appreciating sometimes the slowness of the process and yeah. Yep. Not rushing and and appreciating who you're with and and what you're doing and just being present is really is really important and just your awareness of that and you trying to circle back and like that's that's huge. Yeah. Well, I I think that's why your message connects so so strongly with me and and probably a lot of other people. I, I don't think I'm alone in feeling that 
the connection to my food is a very important relationship in my life and learning how other people and other cultures are connected to their food, which connects them to their landscapes. I don't think it's weird to want to explore that and investigate it and learn more about it and see others talk about it. I, you know, I, I've got to know some people from Hawaii in the last few years and their food connections, their historic native cultural food connections are so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we had the Hokalea crew come up through Southeast Alaska and we did a cultural exchange with them in Juneau and here locally. And the similarities in our, you know, our culture was is so amazing to, you know, be able to share that with them. And, you know, they tried, I did a seal oil and seal crackling, you know, demonstration and they were eating it and they were like comparing it to foods that they eat and the taste. And I was, it was just like, you know, we consider each other family, you know, like our Hawaiian family or yeah, it's, it's pretty neat too. Well, it's, I, I hope that what people gather from this one of hopefully many future conversations is the importance of stories, the importance of cultures, the importance of people telling their stories and having the chance to tell their stories because you, you your humility and your humbleness doesn't let you accept the fact that you are an outer face, a very important outer face of your people, your culture, your traditions to the rest of the world. And thank I you. can almost Oh, I should say Finnish cheese. That's thank you in 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 Plinket. You wanna do a language lesson? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What, how did you say it? Gunish cheese. Gunish cheese. Gunish cheese. Gunish cheese. Better. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to work on that, Heather. Yeah, you in oh. um <gasps> I could say, like, our way of life is hakustei, is our way of life. So, you know, goodness cheesh. And I'm grateful to have shared that with you, our hakustei, wow. our way of life. <laughs> but yeah, that, I'll teach you a word, goodness cheesh. So when you're up here next time I, and you're hunting or you're fueling up at the dock. I know you got a lot of fans up here and you could say, goodness, cheesh. <laughs> you're, you're probably going to have to send that to me with an English spelling so I can at least think about it. Goodness, cheese. Hmm. Yeah, it's like, all right. Goodness, cheesh. I'll send it to you. <laughs> oh, well, maybe we'll have to do another podcast on. Uh, I'm learning uh, my language. I'm learning English it. conversion. Yeah, I'm learning. My three-year-old nephew knows more than me, so it's very humbling oh, cool. experience. And and we learn together, and he's amazing, and he picks it up like that. So yeah, I'm not an oh. expert, but. Luckily, we have, you know, our language speakers and learners and people who can teach us. So, (laughs) yeah, well, I I feel like I wouldn't be doing the audience uh, 
any well, how do I say it? I think I owe the audience the the connections of where they could also if you want them to. We can edit this piece out if you want it edited out. But I'm gonna throw it out there. Do you want people to to know where they can learn about your your uh furrier and fur and skin work? Yeah. I mean if so, I have on my AK Moosey page, um, my fur page is linked in the bio section. It's okay. my traditional name, so I call it Kutink Creations. It's really just a placeholder. I wasn't expecting to have a little fur page, and and I'm thinking about where you know that journey is going to take me. But right now I do sell some items just to recoup the cost of tanning and, and, you know, I don't mass produce things. It, it's a, the things that are on that page are things that I make in the winter months when I'm not out harvesting and, and gathering my winter supply of food. But, you know, sometimes I do open it up and take orders and mm. I've been expanding, you know, my, my role in, in working on blankets and, and things that are challenging for me, but yeah, yeah. I'd love it. If, if you want to share about my fur page and, and where they can look, I would sure. really appreciate that. Um, yeah. I just feel so humbled by this whole experience. I've never done a podcast before and I hope that oh. I hope that you enjoyed it as and as much as I did. I really had a great time oh. having yeah. this. It just felt like a conversation with you and I, I hope that all of your listeners really you know like it and and can go on AK Moosey and and appreciate my dad as much as i do <laughs> yeah that's, i think they will but, and your appreciation for your dad and all the all that he's teaching is so obvious that on that page and i i hope if you don't do instagram do instagram at least for the purpose of following the page ak moosey i would say that yeah you could say that i mean and honestly I could tell you, because you can say like anything you want about the fur page and if you're interested in the fur stuff, but yeah, to tell you a little bit about the fur items on there. So, you know, as you've heard throughout our conversation, we harvest like maybe one seal a year. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll see some items on there that have seal skin incorporated on them, like the moccasin tops and you know, I have a limited supply because we don't take more than what we're going to use. So once right. I'm out of seal, I'm out of seal until the next year. And so those items aren't mass produced, but each each item on there, you know that um, they were harvested for subsistence use. And the materials came from the animals we eat or the animals we harvest for subsistence purposes and that it just sort of brings it full circle for me. You know, I know that people yeah. who follow AK Moosey don't only want to see fur stuff. And I really didn't want people on there to think I'm using that for business. Mm -hmm. So I pulled, you know, over to the side here and, and made a page for the fur stuff. But 
those are all materials that we've harvested. And then I buy my supplies from indigenous owned businesses. Oh, great. Yeah. So you'll see some wool backing on the blankets and I bought that wool backing from an indigenous owned business. And I try to support, you know, my, my brothers and sisters who are also doing similar work to yeah. me. Oh, that's, that is cool. But yeah, I, thank I, you for promoting that. I mean, I, yeah. I honestly never thought I would be selling my items. That's it's so humbling for me because I, I'm overwhelmed with the support that I'm seeing from everybody and, and that they really appreciate the work that, that I'm doing in the skin sewing and, it's yeah. worth every bit of people asking me, what kind of world is this? <laughs> because I know that around Christmas time, okay, here's a little sidebar. One of the most, besides the using all the materials that come from the animals we harvest, like that's very mm-hmm. a rewarding part of what I'm doing. The other side is there is a whole bunch of thoughtful men and women out there who plan ahead for holidays they reach out they want to buy moccasins for their daughters their wives their girlfriends their husbands and just all the important people in their lives and they want to support an indigenous owned business someone who's making handmade items and being able to make those things for people to give as gifts, you know, around the holidays or a special birthday, whatever, it makes me so happy. Mm -hmm. I'm like, these guys are so nice. These ladies are so (laughs) nice. They're, (laughs) they Um, like, oh, their favorite color is this, or they like that, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm glad there's so much good in the world. Yeah. Well, the other part of that is with every one of those, there's that story of Heather and her dad and her community and her people. And each one, each one comes with a card, you know, I put like who it was harvested by and, and, you know, who taught me to sew and it it comes with a little like explanation. So whoever they send it to will know, you know, where that came from. But (laughs) cool. Yeah. Well, I, I, could stay here forever, Heather, and continue to talk. But I promised you I'd only take two hours of your very busy day. Uh, and we're past that. <laughs> uh, if I have a little bit of warning, or yeah, if someone heads to Southeast Alaska, don't have Verizon as your cell carrier because you might get a message from Heather <laughs> that you don't get until you arrive back in Seattle I, where Verizon works again. Yeah, I heard Randy was in town in my tiny uh, town and I saw him actually at the boat launch and then again at the grocery store, which is not uh, uncommon. And I uh, thought, should I should I introduce myself? But I'm a little bit shy and I didn't. But I'm so grateful to now have met you on here and hopefully next time you're in town, yeah, um, we can hang out in person and um, AT&T yeah. is the carrier you want. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Unless you want well, to fully disconnect, then keep Verizon. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, so your dad's name is Mike, correct? Mm-hmm. I want to be like Mike. In a lot of respects, I want to have his knowledge and his skills, but I also want to be like Mike who doesn't really care or know what Instagram is. <laughs> People, so we were in Cabela's in in the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. And I'm like looking at sunglasses, you know, so we don't have, we don't shop in person, you know, everything's online. So when you get to go somewhere and shop in person, it's really fun. So we're in Cabela's, right? And we split ways and I'm looking at the sunglasses and he calls me. Well, the store is big. So I'm like, okay, he's probably looking for me. He calls me and he goes, you got to come here. Which that's how he talks. I always tell people he's not mad at you. That's just how he talks. Yeah. He goes, you got to come here. I'm like, okay. Where are you? He goes and buy the fishing gear. I'm like, okay. He goes, there's these guys who know me, and <laughs> I go, okay, I'll be right here. And I go, and he's got these men around him, like, and and. I go, hey, what's going on? And and they're like, we knew it was him. And he's standing there like in the fishing aisle. And you know, we got our hand tattoos with our permanent regalia. So he said uh-huh. they came up to him and they go, hey, I think you're that guy. And then he goes, what guy? And they go, the guy off on Instagram. And then they looked down at his hand and saw his hand tattoo, which he has his clan crest, which is... He has a raven, yeah. a beaver, and I have a killer whale for mine. But they go, it is, it is you. And <laughs> they're taking pictures with him. I'm like, oh my gosh, my poor dad. He did not sign up for any of this, but uh-huh. it's happened a few times. Um, yeah. It happened mm-hmm. like a week ago in the grocery store and like earlier this summer at the pharmacy. People are like, you're the, you're the guy. <laughs> But he's uh, he's never seen the page, but he yeah. he does enjoy teaching and um that's really what he's doing and it's so mm-hmm. funny because before this I could not get a picture of my dad. Really? Never would be in a picture. And then hmm. I would share the nice comments. I do read the comments, I don't always respond, and I do read the mm-hmm. comments and I share the nice things that everybody says about him or to him with him. Yeah. And it has evolved. So now I'll show up at his house, which I see him every day. And I'm so lucky to be able to see my dad every single day, but I'll show up at his house and I'll have like the table set up with the knives and the fish will be there. And he'll be like, I've been waiting. And I'm like, (laughs) Oh, are we doing a, are we doing a video? And he's like, well, yeah. The one guy wants to know how to sharpen a knife. I'm like, okay. And then (laughs) I'm like kind of, you know, like taking my time. And he's like, video? (laughs) Like, get out your phone. (laughs) Oh, I love it. And um, I just love the evolution of dad. You know, I've had my own journey with the the marine mammal, you know, and being comfortable in this space. And he's had his own journey, like accepting the role as, 
you know, as the teacher of social media on my page and it's, it's great. Yeah. Well, you guys make a great team and I, I hope that you keep doing it. Uh, thanks for doing it. Thanks for opening my eyes and making me laugh, smile, making me ask questions. Uh, it's really, you're doing a remarkable job, Heather. Uh, thank you. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome up here anytime. And I hope this is just the beginning. I'd love to join you again for, for this. And if anybody has any questions, you know, please feel free to ask and I'll do what I can to help get answers. Great. Well, thanks so much, Heather. I'm, I'm going to work on that. Thank you. Gunish Cheesh. Gunish Cheesh. You, good, you did it. <laughs> Third time's a charm, yeah, maybe. great uh, job. Well, you have a great day, folks. Thanks for being here. Go out, if you're on Instagram, go check out AK Moosey. I can promise you, I, this is the 100% guarantee you can take to the bank that once you follow some of that you will become a subscriber to ak moosey and heather and mike will make you laugh give you cause to smile and make you hungry too thank you goodness cheese <laughs> thanks heather when the sun came shining and i was strolling and the leaf fields waving and the dust clouds rolling is the fog was For you